Welcome to the 277th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome journalists Michelle Weldon and Marianne Renault to discuss vaccination culture in the United States. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, May 17th, 2021, there are 3,380,516 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States from COVID-19 has now reached 585,970 lives lost. In India, 274,411 have died of the disease, and in Canada, 24,948 people have died from COVID-19. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Bibi Romesa John, home health aide in Queens, dies at 48. This was written by Catherine Q. Seeley and appeared May, May 12, 2021 in the Those We've Lost section of the New York Times. Bibi Romesa John was a caregiver for her entire life, having trained through the Salvation Army in her native Guyana to become a nurse and home health aide. In the early 2000s, Ms. John immigrated to Queens, where she took particular pride in caring for older people. One of her patients was a 91-year-old man, William Simpson, whom she had cared for for over a 10-year period. There were tensions in his family, and toward the end, when he was in the final stages of dementia, Ms. John was able to help family members reconcile with him and with one another, his daughter, Jordana I. Simpson, said in an interview. Ms. John held his hand as he took his last breath, she said, adding that through her compassion and empathy, Ms. John did everything right. Ms. John died on March 25th at a hospital in Forest Hills, Queens. She was 48. She had tested positive for COVID-19 on February 16th, her husband, Dwayne John, said. Mr. John said that he, she, and his older son, Jonathan, 17, all contracted the virus at the same time. Jonathan had a mild case and recovered quickly, but Mr. John said his own case was so severe that he thought he was going to die. Mentally and physically, it has such an effect on you, he said. It gave me that feeling of final destiny. Bibi Romeza Khan was born on December 6, 1972, in Virgen Ogen, Guyana, to Assad and Lakmin Khan. She immigrated in the 1990s to Trinidad and Tobago, where she married and gave birth to a son, Stephen Timothy Gilterry. She later moved to the United States, where she divorced and then back to Guyana. While attending a wedding there in 2015, she became reacquainted with Mr. John, an old friend. They were married in 2016 and moved to Queens, where she worked as a home health aide, often as part of a team with her mother, and he found a job as an iron worker. In addition to her husband and her stepson, Jonathan, she's survived by her mother, her son, Stephen, her husband's other son, Jaden, and his daughter, Jasenia John, and her brothers, Reyes, Imtiaz, and Montaz Khan. Mr. John said that his wife had achieved many of her goals, including becoming a United States citizen in 2018 and buying her own home. She was good at organizing and managing and getting people to do things, he said and she dreamed that one day she might start a home health agency. We thought there would be that golden opportunity for her to have her own business, he said. Loved her job, he said, and caring for people came so naturally to her that she never considered it work. 
it was more like a labor of love. She has never worked a day in her life, according to her. Okay, I'd like to turn to our conversation for today. Let me introduce my guests to you. Marianne Renault is a health and science journalist born in France, bred in the Midwest, and now based in Brooklyn. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The New Republic, Popular Science, and more. Michelle Weldon is Emerita Faculty in Journalism at Northwestern University, a senior leader with the Op-Ed Project, author of six nonfiction books and journalist for more than 40 years whose work has appeared in Washington Post, New York Times, USA Today, CNN, Times Slate, The Guardian, and many more. Marianne and Michelle, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. I'd like to start the way I generally do and just to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is there today, maybe what the vaccination situation is looking like. Marianne, let me start with you on that. Right, I'm, I'm here in New York and I think as of a, a few days ago, um, about half of all New Yorkers had received at least one dose of, of COVID, um, of the COVID vaccine. So um, I think that's about on par with with the, the nation. And um, as of the, the new guidance from last week, I mean, walking around Brooklyn and Manhattan in the last week, things have looked more normal here than they have in a really long time. Michelle, same question to you. Well, I'm uh, in Chicago. My immediate uh, pandemic situation is I'm I'm living in um, my home with two adult sons moved back and they um, are both vaccinated. And I have a, a third son who's in Cincinnati and he's double vaccinated. The situation in the city here is that um, you don't even need appointments anymore. You can walk in uh, to places, uh, you know, large community centers all over the city and the suburbs and even in, uh, you know, pharmacies, Walgreens, Walmart. It's really easy to get vaccinated now and the city is reopening. So it's it's changed quite a bit in the last month. Does it, Michelle, seem like an, an uncanny experience then that this transformation has occurred? As Marianne was describing, you know, people walking around without masks and, and something that appears to be almost like a normal late spring life in Chicago? Well, people are still wearing masks here, probably about half and half. Uh, but there are, you know, crowds at, at, at restaurants outdoors. I mean, the weather has finally turned here uh, in the Midwest. So it, it feels very different uh, than a month ago. And the desperation, the cloud of, of that anxiety uh, seems to have lifted. But then it's replaced by a new concern because um, what's the authenticity of the people who are maskless? Did they get vaccinated or are they just pretending they were vaccinated? Who's checking? So that's uh, kind of on the radar now. Um, if you're not required to wear masks, if you're vaccinated, who's checking to see that you're not vaccinated, that you are vaccinated? So that's the it's, a, it's a particular kind of anxiety that I've heard others describe. I don't think we have terminology for it yet to to sort of capture that feeling of being in a crowd and just sort of wondering who who has and who has not received vaccination yet. Well, you both um, came into my consciousness. You're writing initially, although you've both written a lot, and I'm glad I discovered your writing, um, but I discovered it really in the context of this period of time in the spring when vaccinations were not so readily available. And I want to start our discussion today with that, and we'll see where we go as we talk about this sort of odd culture of vaccination that's been created in the United States in the last few months. Marianne, I want to just start with a story that you published in the New Republic. This appeared on April 5th, and I've put the links up to these articles that we'll be discussing today on Twitter. People can find those there, and I'll put them up again after our conversation today. I'm just going to quote a little bit of your story, Marianne. You write, across the United States, people are getting vaccinated in dormant horse racetracks, empty baseball stadiums, mega church parking lots, target dressing rooms, and abandoned shopping malls. They're the kind of places that don't register as places because they're so peripheral, just part of the sprawl said Brandon O'Brien, who lives in Phoenix and got his COVID-19 shot at 5 a.m. in a drive-thru in the parking lot of Cardinal Stadium in Glendale, Arizona. So 
just to start out our conversation, tell us about this story that you wrote, how you compiled these quite extraordinary narratives of vaccination, and maybe tell us a little bit more about these people you talked to. Gladly. Um, so I, I can't really take credit um, for for the original idea. It was a, a writer that I follow on Twitter, Michael Robbins, who tweeted about he got he got a vaccine in an abandoned Kmart and had noted that a friend of his had gotten their vaccine in a minor league baseball stadium and was sort of suggesting like there's probably an essay here about the medicalization of like the hinterland. Uh, the hinterlands. And I thought that that was really, really compelling. And um, uh, he got so much, so much response to this tweet. And it was people offering up their own examples. And they were really, they were all, uh, so many of them were striking in, in, or funny, you know, it was things like, um, you know, an old Toys R Us, or a casino, or, you know, as you mentioned, a Target dressing room, or amusement parks, really places that I think we don't think of as medical spaces and certainly the kinds of places that we wouldn't normally, most of us haven't been to during the pandemic. A lot of them had been dormant and some of them even had sort of years of, uh, had been part of a years long process of abandonment. So there was something just really compelling about that. The fact that people were receiving sort of their salvation, the beginning of the end of the pandemic in these places that were simultaneously so mundane, so so peripheral, um, yet in that moment felt really monumental, really felt like a shift mentally. And and so I, just, I literally went through that that Twitter thread and started asking people if I could, you know, talk to them about their experience and found, you know, a lot of themes emerging in those conversations. And and so those are places that public health officials turned to because they were close by and and easy to get to. They were unused. They were. What was the logic of turning to these kinds of spaces for mass vaccination? I think um, I think some of them were very clearly examples of um, uh, sort of architecturally made sense for that stage of the pandemic. Right. You're, if you look at, and think about something like a an athletic stadium that's going to have a really big parking lot which is going to be really useful for getting a lot of cars you know through very quickly you know these are places that are sort of structurally big and are not really being used for their their usual purposes so i think a lot of it was where can we have a big space that is easily accessible you know maybe there are buses or other public transportation that that will allow people to get there easily where we can fit a lot of people, keep maintain social distance, and sort of quickly vaccinate people in a real, you know, it was a real mass vaccination site, va- mass vaccination sites. So I think part of it was just the the empty space um, that clearly, you know, we weren't going to be able to do this at, at hospitals and doctors' offices because they're already full, and also it, you know, logistically wouldn't make sense. As I read that your piece and thought more about it. You know, it also, it's exposing, I mean, so many things this pandemic has shown us that we had forgotten or had chosen to forget. One of them is the way that urban space and suburban space has changed so much in the last 20 years. I mean, many of these sites, right, are ones that um, now have been replaced by the internet economy. They're places we might have gone even quite recently to do shopping in sort of big box settings and, and, you know, that kind of activity, which has now been pushed to the side. Right. There's, I mean, there's something sort of nostalgic about some of them. I, um, when a, someone, a couple of people in the thread were mentioning, you know, I went back to the the place where I saw some of the, my, the best concerts I ever saw when I was, you know, young, or mm-hmm. I, I went back to, you know, um, I went back to the, the roller rink where <laughs> I used to hang out as a teenager. And so there is sort of a, a nostalgia to some of these spaces. Um, and, and I think that there was also something interesting about, um, you know, a lot of a lot of people during the pandemic either experienced, um, you know, sort of a like the pandemic happened nowhere because they were contained within their homes for so much of it, or it, it they were forced, you know, to work in the public in a place that had been rendered really sort of potentially dangerous. And so there was something really fascinating to me about these nostalgic, abandoned sort of husks of a previous life, whether that was right before the pandemic or whether that was 10 years ago or from your childhood 
suddenly given a completely different meaning. Um, I, I found that to be on one hand inspiring and also a lot of people described it to me as being very dystopian, you know, sort of how, how did it end like this, you know, in an, in an empty right. Toys R Us. I, I suppose you have to be, I mean, I'll just cop to being sort of proud Generation X, whatever that, that means, and to the extent that the idea you could summon some kind of nostalgia for going to a Kmart, but that, it resonates with me, really does, <laughs> you know, and, and that those places um, are ones that had been sort of pushed to the side and you rediscover them in this way is yet another, to me, just sort of unexpected moment um, in this pandemic. And one of the historians I spoke to said something really interesting, which was, uh, it, it's a historian of medicine, and he mentioned that there was certainly a period in the U.S. where we were building our hospitals, we were building some of the first kind of clinics, um, you know, centers for medicine, and that it was really preferred at that time that um, these would be built in, in natural spaces and marshes and fields and in places that were pristine and untouched, and that reality just sort of isn't possible anymore. And so in some ways, we're seeing um, this was a bit of a, a, a reassessment of the limited physical space that we have and a reimagining of mm. what some of the what we would describe as empty or hinterland or abandoned could could be reclaimed as um, a, a space of public health. It's really interesting. I think you spoke, did you speak with Graham Mooney for that? for that article. <laughs> Graham's a colleague and he's at Johns Hopkins and he's been a guest actually on COVID calls last last fall. So it was really great to see him um, referenced in your piece. Let me, Michelle, let me bring you in and just, um, just going to draw some attention to an article that you published in the Washington Post on April 9th. And just going to, again, um, read a sentence from this. You wrote, by drive, this is how the piece starts, by driving 169 miles from my home in suburban Chicago to a downstate CVS pharmacy for my first coronavirus vaccination. I was investing seven hours of a workday to protect myself from what may be ahead. As a 62-year-old with pre-existing conditions, I had decided to take a one-day vaccination. So, and then it goes on from there to talk about that phenomena of people crossing state lines, in many cases, driving many hours, and then what happened as they went to get vaccination. Could you start just by sharing your own um, vaccination, uh, vaccination road trip story. Right. And let me also say, I fell in love with that word that I made up and I thought this is going to really go viral. Nothing. <laughs> I'm the only one who said it. Well, You're the only other person I heard say it out loud. <laughs> we're going to give it a second shot right now. Cause I think it does but, capture a no particular moment in time very well. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I also just want to say, Marianne, I really appreciated your thoughtful framing of this. And it was a whole nother way to look at uh, vaccination through uh, geography and, and place. So thank you so much for that. Actually, the start of this piece was as a, an essay. So I sent it to um, my editor who am I write personal essays and commentary for. And she said, no, the travel section wants it. I was like, okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, I was really grateful for the opportunity. So then I reported out on that and, and found so many people incredibly frustrated. As I uh, talk in the piece, I spent 30 hours trying to, um, you know, get a, a, a vaccination appointment in in the Chicago area, in my county, in my suburb, and then, um, you know, hearing stories of just friends and family who could not get the vaccination. And I'm talking about for six to eight weeks trying. It was almost like it, it brought me back to the days of like trying to get tickets for, you know, the Rolling Stones or the the Who or, or something where you just couldn't and they were gone in in, in minutes. Like you would click on, um, you know, the, the government site and it would say, you know, 875,000 people are waiting for 10,000 shots. And you're like, oh, okay. Um, so it was born, my story was really born of that frustration and starting to report that um, it got very upsetting. It it was, you know, it, it sounds a little lighthearted in the beginning, but it really is about inequity and access because there was that study uh, that I found from the University of Pittsburgh where 9 million people live more than 10 miles from a, a vaccination site. And, you know, those 9 million people may not all have a car or a way to get to that site or um, even a day off of work 
or childcare. So it is about um, in in the early days, uh, you know, in April, <laughs> it was mostly about privilege and about access, and it was a glaring uh, commentary on the inequities and who could not get the the vaccinations. There were even some scandals in the Chicago area, as you can imagine, of um, it it being. Uh, vaccinations being doled out, uh, you know, as gifts and recognition for for uh, prominent friends. There was a hospital um, administrator who got in a great deal of trouble for that. Um, so that that's what this story was about and what it revealed, not just the, the persistence of people who, you know, were driving up to eight hours to get a vaccination and, you know, making a go of it, but about how many people were not able to. One quite specific thing, just to follow up, is how were people finding out where this excess um, vaccine was available so that they could plan a day or more time around traveling uh, a couple hundred miles to go get vaccinated? So there are these marvelous guardian angels called vaccine hunters. Um, and that was on Facebook. And there were uh, groups that were in, in many, many cities uh, across the country and the two groups that um, were in Illinois and the Chicago area were run by high school students who spent the time hunting for people where they could get vaccines and responding to their questions. Somebody would say, you know, I live in, you know, X suburb, I can't find it, what am I gonna do? And they would find them an appointment. So how far are you willing to drive? And they would find, so that, and they did that for free and they did that as a service. And I know many, many people who, um, you know, and not necessarily would hire someone, but would have someone dedicated to having, you know, 10 um, sites open at once, going from CVS to Walgreens, to the government site, to another site, to another, and have it all open at once at the same time time trying to get an appointment and never having the fear that you would double book yourself because that was just, I mean, mostly it was zero booking yourself. the, it, the lead of the piece, I think, really hits so many of those notes that you go on to explore. I mean, that you had to take a day off work, you had to travel this distance. And you also talk about in the piece um, also the privilege to a certain extent, as you just said a moment ago, to being able to get that time off, get in a car and go and do that. Can you say a little bit more about how you, you think this sort of vaccination actually throws into relief some of the inequalities that COVID-19 is, is showing us? Right. So the, you know, the people that I interviewed, some of them, you know, took several days off work. There was um, a young man who went to uh, South Carolina with a bunch of friends from uh, New York and and drove down there and they decided to take a weekend out of it. I mean, who has that kind of time or, or, you know, spare money to do that? And um, Marianne, I also found uh, a family who went to Glendale um, to that, to the stadium there, to Glendale, Arizona, to that site, because they were offering um, through some Facebook groups and and some um, organizations, they were offering. If you volunteer for eight hours, you will get your vaccine. So this um, woman I spoke to signed up her whole family. So who has eight hours to volunteer, right? So if you're, you know, you're a nine to five worker. Um, or you're, um, you know, a teacher or a, a, a mom who is to take care of her kids, you can't volunteer for eight hours. So you're out of it. So um, that it was um, glaring the disparities and what was offered. Um, and, you know, I, I found that uh, disturbing. <laughs> I, I was also impressed, though, Michelle, and I think this resonates with, with your writing, Marianne, as well, that um, it's sort of also a kind of a pandemic sociability has been kind of forged here, too. I mean, Michelle, you wrote about people who did use this opportunity to see people that they hadn't seen since the pandemic started. Is that right? That's right. You know, um, a, a daughter connecting with her mother and, you know, people connecting with their friends, uh, meeting at the site, getting vaccinated and then you know, going from there. So yeah, it was a, a, a possibility to remove uh, from the remote isolation and enter into this this new world um, of, you know, safety. Uh, that was a possibility that also gave some relief. And I quoted um, uh, Inger Burnett Zeigler, who's this marvelous um, author and psychologist at Northwestern um, in, in Chicago, who talked about 
the uh, psychological aspect of stress relief of getting of getting the shot. You you know, and I also write about I I really instantly did feel relieved. I mean, I had a sore arm, but it's like, okay, now I can stop worrying, right? Or at least begin to stop worrying. And I think that's a real thing. You felt like the trip at that point had been had been worth it. Right. You know, I wish I didn't have to drive 170 miles in, right. in the pouring rain to, you know, southern Illinois, but um, and didn't, you know, miss working that day. But um, yeah, I did. Absolutely. And I also felt, you know, quite aware and cognizant of who I am as as a privileged working person who can afford to do that, who has a car and who can pay for gas. Marianne, let me just bring you back in on that. And and again, you know, you talked to a lot of people who described their vaccination experience. Um, maybe you could say a little bit about what they shared with you in, in, in reference to what Michelle's describing, this kind of unexpected, to me at least, a kind of vaccination um, form of socializing that we hadn't really, I had never thought about that before this spring. Well, that's, I mean, I think that's part of what makes the, the, the vaccine drive is kind of psychologically interesting is it was, it's the, everything we're describing, um, or at least the, a lot of what I described in my piece was, it's very public, you know, it was very communal. It wasn't going into a doctor's office at your appointment and only seeing the doctor and getting the shot and then leaving. I mean, there was, because of the volume and because of the way that the, the, the sites work, you are sort of surrounded by other people who are in the exact same position as you. And that is such a, that's so different than how we've all experienced the pandemic, which was in some ways, you know, um, a very isolating experience, even for, for, for those of us who, you know, were living with family members or who had to go out to work and had to leave the comfort of home. I think there was sort of an element of everyone uh, went through the pandemic and suffered sort of their own version of a personal hell, I think. <laughs> a lot of people did. And so there was something really, um, you know, people described to me that there was something a little bit anxiety producing about suddenly being in a space, sharing public space with other people, but that there was this sense of, of, of um, yeah, sociability, of, of, um, of, of communion, right? Which is also funny because it's, you know, communion, communion is not a feeling that I think many of us had at Kmart <laughs> in its heyday. No. But, and, um, you know, I did have like, I, I, there's one uh, person I talked to in particular that jumps out in my mind and she um, lives in, in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. Um, and she works at a, at a hospital there and she does COVID investigations and, and told me that when she went and got her COVID vaccine, she sort of made a joke to the nurse who was helping her and then it turned into a 20 minute conversation um, where they talked about the the rolling trauma of 15 months of pandemic and you know um and and that you know she she talked to this nurse about feelings of you know burnout and and said the whole thing was really deeply healing you know to have this moment um with a person who is giving her that helping get her that sense of relief that the vaccine itself um obviously provides um, but then also sort of the 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 healing nature of having just a, a positive experience with a stranger and doing something that feels like progress after a year of hopelessness or helplessness. And I think a lot of people felt that, you know, I certainly did. Michelle, was that the vibe at the vaccination center where you were? Was there this kind of feeling that, as Marianne described it, as sort of a a, a communion, a coming together, a space where people can actually unburden themselves in ways other than just to get a shot and move on? Yes, absolutely. You know, I agree with you completely, Marianne. Um, I was in a CVS and the, the waiting line, I thought it was a, an odd choice of aisles. It was, you know, adult diapers and condoms, you know, so you're, you're there for, you know, half an hour, be like, okay, well, I don't need to buy either one of those right now. But, um, there was, you know, other people online, you know, you were six feet from them, but they were, hello, where'd you come from? And where are you, where do you live at? You know, um, and I found that the staff uh, were so kind, you know, it's almost like, um, you know, it was almost like a, a church kind of 
thing, like a church breakfast or um, (laughs) right. It wasn't exactly as relaxed as a spa, nor did it smell like one, but um, everybody was really, um, you know, they talked softly and they were kind and are you okay? And I'm going to do this here now. And, you'll be fine. And then um, because I have allergies, I had to wait 30 minutes afterwards. So I was there with a lot of other people sitting there and, you know, you're saying hello to their children and, you know, talking to what are you doing here? Where are you from? So there was a sense of community and, you know, return to long lost socializing, right? Because in, in, you know, I only go to have been going to, you know, the grocery store and, and, you know, very little um, else, very few other places. And in my mask, I don't, I don't necessarily talk to people, right? You just go and get it done. So it was, it was, it was nice. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Marion, go ahead. No, I, 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 it just, um, Michelle's story reminds me of um, uh, someone I spoke to for the piece who um, got her vaccine at a JCPenney and said there was like balloons and everyone was, was lovely and it was like a celebration. And she said something really funny, like it was like the happiest this place had been <laughs> in a really long time. And right. then her husband got his also at his CVS, I believe, or a Rite Aid or a pharmacy and um, they were laughing as they were waiting in line for his because they were in the toilet paper aisle and it was full <laughs> of toilet paper and they felt that that was very auspicious. So, <laughs> you know, there are these little moments of, you know, I, and I think particularly at that moment, you know, in late March and early April, it was really the vaccine opened up and 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 if you wanted to get a vaccine, you could. And, and, it, and it, there was sort of a, a real celebratory, a sense of celebration, I think. And I think... Also for the staff, a real, um, I think the the kindness and the um, joyfulness was very uh, strategic because I think it was a way for anyone who was maybe a little bit hesitant or nervous to to feel comfortable um, at at that point in the, the vaccine drive. So I actually think it was very strategic in a good way to make people relax and, and see that moment for what it was, which was a great relief, you know, point of relief. And, you know, I think there was a branding strategy in that too, Marianne, especially at CVS, because I tweeted a selfie and I said, you know, I'm, I'm at CVS and, you know, um, Roz was the nurse who helped me and then uh, CVS retweeted me. So I'm like, well, I, I hope she gets the recognition for, you know, right. team member or something. But uh, they're like, how was your experience and you know so there was a branding strategy there too if i had brought the three of us together 18 months ago and told you we would have a conversation with details like this you would have thought that i was completely um helpless and and but it's so i'm so appreciative to both of you for um the amount of reflection and the detail that you've put into this reporting and you're thinking about it because it's capturing a culture a particular moment in time, I think, with so much meaning invested in these things. Marianne, I was just thinking, even though the, you talked about the couple waiting in the toilet paper aisle is full. I mean, that's a callback to a, a moment in time that revealed a real supply chain problem in the United States that for many people was deeply distressing because it was a question, will I be able to get food and basic supplies in this? And so that fear is had become so normalized, I think, for us. And here's this moment of um, some kind of deliverance and, and relief through these vaccinations. Yes, to me, to me, an element of what made the, especially the strange vaccination sites so powerful in their own ways, they felt like the 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 reverse reflection of the photos that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, especially early, early on, where the whole world seemed to go into shutdown. And it was, you know, seeing, you know, the, the t- Times Square empty, um, places that are sort of unimagined, where you could not ever imagine it emptying out for anything. Um, those images, I remember, I mean, they, it was so disturbing at that time. It was really some of the most frightening stuff in those early days were the hospitals being overwhelmed and everywhere else being empty. Um, and those, and so there was a sort of symmetry, I thought, with the the vaccination drive, where it was, 
you know, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, it was like the monuments are empty. And then at the vaccine drive, it was like, and now this Kmart, this abandoned Kmart is a, is a monument because everyone that passed through there is going to remember in 10, 20 years. And I got my COVID vaccine, you know, that's where I got it. And it was so weird and it was such a day and it was so important to me, sort of the same way we, you know, someone might remember where they were. I don't know, during during any other historical moments. So there was a real symmetry there, I thought. And this one is more satisfying. <laughs> the first so, one. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Michelle Weldon and Marianne Renault today about vaccination culture in the United States. I just want to stay with that point that you made, Marianne, for, for one second, and um, to come back to the piece that you published in The New Republic, you write um, that there was an aspect of the pandemic that you describe as psychogeographical, and I, I, I love that word, and I think it's one that people should, should think about, the way that your mental state and this place you are are interconnected. Uh, and you wrote this, bedrooms became offices, homes became restaurants, convention centers and ships became hospitals. And it ties back to your you know, reporting about all these spaces that we hadn't thought of as places where you'd go and experience some exaltation. Um, suddenly you do. And so maybe just to get you to reflect a little bit more about that transformation that again, somehow we've kind of grown used to it, that we're going to celebrate um, a wedding or sort of special family event on Zoom uh, or in a backyard. We've been doing these transformations of, of space for, and we've kind of gotten quite good at it, but maybe not reflected enough on what that's meant, particularly what it will mean to go back somehow, or, or, or if we will. I don't know. It opened up for me a whole way of thinking I hadn't quite uh, prepared myself for, Mariana. I wonder if you could comment on it. Right. Well, I, I think that... Um Again, I'm going to speak from my experience, which my experience of the pandemic was was that I was working from home. So, you know, that in and of itself is a, is a privilege. Um, but, you, you know, that was the be that was the beginning of my own reflection on the ways in which a place can stay the same, but change fundamentally because of the way that you exist inside of it, right? There's a huge difference between the apartment that you sleep, you know, I mean, I live in New York and so there's a difference between the apartment that you sleep at every every night, but you really spend your life never in those four walls to that becoming the place that you spend every, every moment, you know? Um, and so it, in, what, unlike other disasters, I think, I think of natural disasters where fundamentally the place where they take, where they occur is going to be physically shaped, right? You know, a tornado is going to physically change the place that it touches. Same with a hurricane or a flood. There's a real sense of after a natural disaster that the, the physicality of the landscape is going to be altered. And during COVID, what a lot of us experienced was that the physical spaces around us, whether that was the one that we were spending all of our time or outside, um, didn't necessarily physically change. Uh, it's just the context got so different, you know? Um, uh, and, and so I think, um, I'm trying to remember exactly what the question was, but there's just this element, I think, of, 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 we've all had to reassess our own personal geographies yeah. and we've had to see places in a completely different light. And I think hopefully, um, you know, we've rethought assumptions about where certain things take place. You know, I, I, I did it across in the reporting and I wish I would have been able to make this point a little bit more clearly in the piece. You know, there are parts of the country where it's very normal to have clinics once a year, twice a year at fairgrounds or at horse race tracks. Right. Um, you know, there were always people, do, there was always students doing homework in McDonald's parking lots because they didn't have Wi-Fi at home. So I, I hope if anything, after the pandemic, we can really think about the, po the positive possibilities of space and also recognize when we're having to use places in an in ideal way because there's a real need that's not being met. Um, I just, I hope that we can, reconsider it both in ways that are positive and and perhaps a little more critical the way that we use the places that we inhabit 
I think that's a really powerful point that it, it, it's a transformation of space for a particular uh, group of Americans, but, you know, middle class people who do have the luxury of separate rooms, let's say, for different activities. And so if it all gets collapsed and that experience is is strange and disorienting for them, that that may be the everyday experience for many other Americans. Um, I worry that we might lose that as you as you expressed. It's a good point to make. Michelle, I wonder, you know, what you think about some of these points Marianne was making about the sort of transformation of everyday space into something new. And then now the question of, will we just go back to the way we were using those places before? Right, I absolutely agree with you completely. Like that a new assignment for uh, the, the spaces we use. You know, I've been, um, you know, freelancing and working out of my home office for probably the last five years in this same space. But I've, I also traveled one to four times a month for work. And I also um, commuted to meetings and was, you know, live in person with real people. Uh, so that this has completely changed. It's, it's cocooning. Um, it's safe. It's also isolating and, and disturbing because there, there is no um, interaction with people in, in person. There's no lunch breaks. There's no talking with someone. Um, you know, when, when you're traveling, it, it's just, it's very strange. So a new assignment of meaning for the, the same place. And, and also, you know, my, my home is like a, we work now, like my two sons live here and work here. They have home offices here too. And, you know, they're, they have meetings and, you know, and they eat a lot. I've rediscovered. Um, so that's, that's different. It, it's just, um, it's a reorientation and, uh, you know, uh, it's it's strange and so going back i don't know if we're ever going back to the way things were culturally it's been the in the workplace but um i'm kind of eager to go back to a place that involves physical interaction just wanted to remind folks again that i'm talking to marianne renault and michelle weldon about vaccination culture in the united states and this sort of uncanny experience of um, finding ourselves working and living in ways that we hadn't before. And now we find ourselves in a time in which now I'm following this from South Korea, where we don't have mass vaccination yet. They're ramping up for that here. So those stories to me feel doubly strange uh, because they're describing a, a culture of lining up at a JC Penney, which is weird enough. And that I'm sort of now I'm like, I really want that, too. Um, but then I just saw in the news that the governor of Ohio is instituting a lottery um, that you, now it's, it seems to flip the other direction. And again, I, I want to be clear, there are still many millions of Americans who don't have the ready access that they need. So I want to I want to lay that down. And I've talked about that on COVID calls before. But but it is important to talk about that in many parts of America. It's now it's a glut. And so policymakers are trying to find a way to incentivize those who haven't yet made time or, or decided they're going to do it um, to overcome their hesitation and go ahead and, and get vaccinated. And in that sense, your stories, Michelle, I want to start with you on this. I mean, doesn't it does seem like almost a, a, a letter in a bottle from a, a time that's distant, but it it's last month. That's right. It feels so long ago um, and, and it has shifted so dramatically. I mean, a seismic shift in, in how you uh, approach the world and your own health. And I know people who who still are not relaxed after, you know, double doses or the or the single dose. Um, and I was with someone last night eating out outside and safely distance where um, she didn't want to touch anybody, you know, still. And she said, well, you can still get COVID if you're, uh, you know, vaccinated. It's like, well, wow, I, I, I got a whole other thing to worry about now. And um, so I think it's going to take a while to, uh, to rebalance everything and for um, us to find, you know, a new normal is such a cliche, but um, for each individual and as a culture, to try and figure out how to navigate the present and the future and what exactly that means, how we interact with each other socially and professionally and, and, you know, what are the consequences? And, 
you know, are we really exonerated from COVID as of yet? And, and what permissions do we have uh, to return to a, a, a pre-COVID life? So those are a lot of considerations that we are on the table. I was thinking that we, um, we're going to need some reporting kind of similar to what you've both done. I mean, Marianne, I was imagining a companion piece to the one that you wrote, which would actually try to catalog the different efforts that policymakers are going through now to incentivize people to get vaccinated. It's, it's somehow all of a piece of the kind of reporting that you did in that earlier piece. Yeah, and I, I do I, I do really, what you said earlier about both of these pieces sort of feeling like, um, you know, a letter in a bottle, I think that feels, that feels really apt um, because it was a particular moment. And I, and I do think, you know, there are people right now who are still not comfortable with the idea of, of how quickly um, it feels to them that the vaccines uh, were developed. And, you know, there are people who are vaccinated, as Michelle said, who um, still don't feel don't feel good about the, the new mask mandate and feel real that gives them a lot of anxiety. So I think there are a lot of people who aren't comfortable yet and uh, for, for very different reasons. And I do think it's going to take everyone a long time to, yeah, whatever that rebalancing is. But I, I do think it's an opportunity in some ways um, you know, for us to consider well, what was normal before and do we really want it to be that way anymore? Um, I'm thinking of in my own life, um, you know, uh, I've, I've joked around with a lot of friends that working from home for a year, it's like we're not bladder trained anymore because we could just go to the bathroom whenever we need to go to the bathroom. And so now when I go to Manhattan um, and I take the train and I'm far from my home and I'm just walking around, um, I notice that public bathrooms in Manhattan are really hard to come by. And, and I think about what, a, what, a, um, what an injustice that is, what an indignity that is for people that live in our city um, who might not have, um, you know, access to bathrooms all the time. And, and that probably it, that probably has not changed. I think that some some businesses are less likely to let the public use their bathrooms now during COVID. But in some ways, that's an opportunity to rethink um, uh, you know, the way things were before COVID and whether we find that acceptable anymore. Um, so it's, it's, it's both a positive and negative and, you know, um, obviously the, um, anti-vax sentiment in the U S is, you know, predated COVID. And I think that we have in some ways, we, I think, um, obviously, you know, there's a lot to say about that, but, but clearly I think there is there, we have learned from previous anti-vaccination sentiment and maybe have a little bit more of a sense of how to approach those individuals and, and, and help people feel comfortable with what is an extremely effective, what are some extremely effective vaccines and some really, I mean, really marvelous products of modern medicine. Um, so, yeah. So you're both accomplished writers who found yourself writing about vaccination. Michelle, you had a book come out in the middle of all of this. And I wonder if we could talk a little bit about it. Um, and I think it's your sixth book, but just to um, say a bit about it, the title is Act Like You're Having a Good Time. It's a collection of essays that you that you published. And I've talked to lots of writers on COVID calls who had most of them academics. And so we don't really expect a lot of fanfare when our books come out. But still, we expect to be able to go like give one or two public talks. And it's like, it's on Zoom. And it's, it's, it's just not the same that again, that sociability that you expect when you work hard on a product and you do really value having a room full of people that want to hear you talk about it. Well, tell us about the book and tell us about the experience of uh, having it come out in this time. Well, it's absolutely, it's very, very different. And yes, this is my sixth book and it's, um, a book of essays on life, work, and meaning. And the title, Act Like You're Having a Good Time, comes from uh, what my father said to the six of us, um, my five brothers, sisters, and I, whenever we would complain, he said, well, I don't care. Just act like you're having a good time. <laughs> so it's not about fake it till you make it. It's about finding the joy in, in whatever is in, in front of you. And yes, it was so different. I think I had probably 20 to 25 virtual events attended by anywhere from 15 to 200 people. And um, it's, uh, it's not anywhere near as satisfying to, you know, be in a bookstore or be at a book festival with a lot of other authors and, you know, 
have people come up to you and talk to you about what your book means to them and and you signing the pages of their book that they they then hold and you know that it's in their home and I mean there is absolutely no personal connection like that you're just answering questions in a chat and you know and just leave meeting you know <laughs> so uh, that was that was difficult um, you know but I am really grateful to have had it out there and it came out in September and. Uh, you know, how books go, my final manuscript was due in January, but thankfully my editor let me um, make changes up until May. So I got to add in things about COVID because it would have been absolutely absurd not to have mentioned it, right? I mean, my, my deadline was January 15th and, and COVID hadn't really materialized in the, in the States then. So I was grateful for that and I got to include... Um, some chapters that that mention that and uh yeah so it was a very different experience can you say a little bit about how the pandemic as you're going through that sort of final editing process did it did it cast new light on some of the ideas that you were developing in the book sure one of the chapters i write about purpose and finding uh purpose in the work that you do and the, and the life that you have when, you know, mortality is hanging in, in front of you and uh, you, you're reading death tolls every day, not only in, in your in your immediate community, but around the world, it, it casts a completely different shadow on what you intend to accomplish and what you intend to do with your life. So I wrote about that and I wrote about privilege and um, what it is to be um you know, uh, uh, an older white woman and what to expect from the world and what to expect I, I have to give to the world and and how I can be a better person and a better ally, which I think so many um, uh, things were brought up during this past year, not only about the, uh, the pandemic of COVID, but the pandemic of social injustice uh, that is rampant in this in this country. So I wrote about that and I wrote about the sense of home which as you were talking about, Marianne, completely changes and it transforms into um, different segments and home has a whole separate meaning of, of where you um, live and who you are and how that reflects on, on you. So hopefully it, had, it, it resonates and it's about, it's not a, you know, a prescriptive book because I don't believe in those. And, and especially the ones that say, clean your basement and you'll be fine. It's like, I, I've cleaned my basement and I'm not. So it's more about um, discovery. And I think a lot of people um, have more time and less time to discover really what, who they are and what they're about and, and, and what do you intend to do about it? So that's, uh, that was the point. The book is Act Like You're Having a Good Time by Michelle Weldon and uh, Michelle, you're describing the, not only the content, but this experience of having the book uh, delay a little bit to catch up with the pandemic and with the Black Lives Matter movement, and then also to um, have it come out in the, in the midst of the pandemic. And I'm glad you, just to linger with this for a second, because there are a lot of sort of writers and academics who listen to COVID calls. Uh, it, it is, it's not the kind of loss you can talk about in the middle of a pandemic and expect anybody to really... Um, grieve for you. And I don't think we're asking for that. But it is, again, one of those many things that we've had to put aside and say, okay, not now. And and one of those is is feeling that satisfaction of a project that you could work for years on. And you just want to share it with a room full of people. And, and you're not going to do that. And I don't know if that means we're going to have like delayed book launch, like book relaunch parties and events. And somehow it feels like that moment will will slip past, but I want to, I just want to validate what you're saying there, Michelle, and I wish maybe we can find a way to stage some of these events again, because I'm one of those people who wants to be there where you signed the book and I'm the guy who will take it home and put it on the <laughs> shelf and really and treasure that. And I think a lot of people are, are like that. Marianne, just to bring you in on this, I mean, you did a lot of reporting throughout the pandemic, um, COVID related and non-COVID related. There's one piece of yours that I was hoping you could say a little bit about it came out in July of last year. Uh, you wrote about with uh, co-author Brian Edwards about volunteer EMTs in the pandemic. At, can you tell us first of all where we find that piece, and uh, I'll try to find put the link up for it. 
It's an extraordinary piece of reporting. And tell us about it. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much. I I, I really appreciate that. I'll um, I'll actually drop the link in here. But um, so that that was a project that, as you mentioned, I worked on with um, uh, a friend and a colleague of mine, Brian Edwards. Um, and we uh, we were really interested in. Well, I've I've I I have somewhat of a fascination with emergency medical services, um, uh, and the ways in which my entry point was the first time I learned what the sort of the median salary was, hourly wage was for EMS uh, employees, I was completely shocked. Um, the idea just in general that if you're in a medical emergency in which you need transportation or you need at home emergency care, that that person could be making, you know, um, I, I don't want to say a number because I'm sure that I'm going to remember it wrong, but certainly far less than a, a doctor does or a nurse does, you know, um, and and um, I, I found that really shocking. And then once I fell down that rabbit hole, realized, well, there are people that do it for free. You know, this is actually not even necessarily something that everyone is paid for. And that um, in particular in um, in rural areas, in places where there might not be the municipal funds uh, for a really robust ambulance um, service that the U.S. has this really long history of volunteers getting the training, paying their way for the training in order to provide that service to their neighbors. And um, Brian and I wanted to understand in what ways the pandemic, we assumed it was making that work harder, Um, but we wanted to really understand how exactly, and it turns out that for a number of reasons, the pandemic um, really put so much pressure on volunteer EMTs and EMS uh, providers. Um, Not only, you know, they couldn't recruit, they couldn't train, they couldn't, um, fundraise. Uh, they were getting more calls than they normally would. They uh, had to buy PPE that they normally wouldn't have had to. And you know, we it was striking to me watching on um, on TV. You know, we would see images from hospitals. You know, really large hospitals. It was shocking to see some of New York's biggest hospitals completely overwhelmed. And then to think that there are also parts of the country where you might have a team of twelve volunteers who are also doing very similar work. You know, caring for some of the first COVID patients in their area going into people's homes, known COVID cases. Um, and that, you know, you think like if, if Bellevue's overwhelmed, then, you know, what about one of Indiana's 800 volunteer ambulance services? And so we, um, you know, we, we focused on that and tried to really give, get and give a sense of what it was like to try to provide life-saving emergency medicine with really the barest of resources and for these people, you know, um, they're giving up time that they could spend getting paid to do that work. You know, that's a, a huge sacrifice of their time um, doing dangerous work uh, just for the love of neighbor and just for yeah, out of compassion and out of a desire to, you know, um, save lives. Uh, I, I mean, we both just found that to be really remarkable. I wonder, it may be hard to generalize, but, you know, the EMTs that you interviewed for this, did they explain to you their motivation for doing this kind of work? I mean, they're essential workers, and then they're essential workers also not getting paid. Yeah, I mean, really, uh, for a lot of them, it was as simple as um, compassion. Um, And, you know, some some volunteer um, EMS providers are also professionals and so it, it so so for, for some of them it's sort of like i'm already a trained emt but in my off hours i'm also going to work for this volunteer um core some of them you know were accountants or lawyers or did something completely different and i think the thing that unites them is this understanding that you know when you're in a medical emergency um seconds can feel like minutes minutes can feel like hours and having someone there looking into your eyes and taking care of you can complete, can be such a powerful thing. And I think genuinely for all of them, it was a desire to help people in need. Um, I don't think it was actually all that complicated. I think they're just really remarkable humans. When I read that piece, it made me think of some of the reporting I've read in the the last few years about opioid, opioid addiction, and again, sort of rural health centers and EMTs, um, although I hadn't thought of them in this sort of volunteer context, who had already found themselves in, in the middle of this slow-moving disaster in America. And it's probably many of them are the same people who found themselves 
re reacting uh, to the pandemic. Do they reflect on that at all in the in your discussion with them? Uh, not not so much, but I think it was probably just because we were really hounding <laughs> them about COVID stuff. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, so, so not that I can recall, but um, I'm I'm sure you're right uh, that that many of of the people we spoke to are probably responding to overdoses and um, and and watching that very different epidemic unfold over a longer scale. We're almost up on time in our discussion today with Michelle Weldon and Marianne Renault, but since you're both such astute observers of of this time, I did want to ask you, Michelle, want to start with you on this. Um, what do you think is going to stick in collective memory? And, and I guess there's going to be many different types of collective memories of this, but maybe your own, your own memory and the collective memory of uh, people that you've talked to, what's going to stick about this time? Well, we my, talk yeah, go ahead. I'm oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Well, go ahead. Well, well, my wish is that empathy is one of the greatest takeaways because we've experienced and witnessed uh, so much loss and grief and, and not only that, but diligence and hard work and persistence and, you know, uh, compassion that uh, health workers are, are, are putting forth and, and that journalists trying to report on, on all this and to offer the truth. I hope there is, um, you know, if we take anything away, it's that benefit of the doubt you know, give give someone, listen to someone and, and give them the benefit of the doubt and react with empathy, um, understanding that there is so much um, unseen and invisible stress in, in people's lives. And, and to take note that uh, everyone needs care because COVID at, um, attacked anyone and everyone. You know, without boundary, and so perhaps we can react with empathy without boundary. Marianne, let me bring you in on that, just sort of reflecting on what might be some of the takeaways, and what do you think even, you know, might be specific. You know, we started this talking about your piece, uh, the odd places that people were getting vaccinated, and you you left open the possibility that someone might like that might become the defining thing they remember about this time, lining up at a CVS or an old concert venue or something like that. I, I think we should leave some space for that. But I wonder, are those the things we're going to remember? I, I think, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> yes, I think there, there probably there probably will be, you know, um, um, a, a little bit of the focus on on the positive elements. I would I would really hope that we remember exactly who got us through this pandemic, you know, um, all of the essential workers who like I said, I worked from home, but um, all the essential workers who who helped ensure that our food supply um, was intact, you know, all of the medical workers, there was there was this um, uh, something that I quoted in the, the New Republic piece, which is that, you know, something that a disaster can do is it can really lay bare some of the dynamics and institutions. And I think certainly we saw that over the last year, but I hope that we take away with us that often the people that we treat the worst in our society are the people who got us through this pandemic and that um, it is completely worth every ounce of our energy to raise the standard, um, you know, of, of living for everybody and not forget those contributions because they are often made invisible um, and they're often not that easy to, to see. Um, and so I, I really hope that um, a lot of the social progress or the social movement, um, the motivation that people have felt to, to try and, and, you know, um, pr protect people who really did dangerous work, um, in order to feed or to take care of, or protect in many other ways, their neighbors and strangers. Um, I, I hope we hold on to that and we turn that into real action. Um, because I, I, I do think it's, it's almost, um, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to remember how funny it is that, you know, you got your, your COVID shot at a Kmart and it is a funny and positive experience, but, um, you know, I don't think we should get too comfortable too quickly. We think we should remember the discomfort and the pain and the suffering, not only of the, lo the lives we lost, but the lives that we really put through the ringer. Um, yeah. So that's my hope. It's not very positive. But <laughs> oh, and it, just as, as we're on, on the way out, Marion, could you tell us, um, some, 
something you're working on now that we should look for from you in, in the future? I mean, you do all kinds of different science writing, and people can discover your, your writing on your website. I think it's MarianneRenault.com, and people can find your writing there. Um, what are you writing about right now? Um, so I, in the next couple of weeks, I'll be writing about, um, ransomware in healthcare, um, and so cybersecurity, uh, and, um, I'm, I'm also, uh, hopefully soon putting out a piece, um, uh, that I've been working on for a while for the Atlantic that's about, uh, medicinal maggots. So not COVID related, uh, and a bit of history of science and, and medicine that'll be a little bit more lighthearted, albeit pretty gross. Well, if there's nothing that historians medicine historians of medicine love is that when somebody finds medical practice gross, that you know you hit you hit something <laughs> historically important there. You got a shout out from some of your writing got a shout out from Ed Young last year last year too, reporter in in the Atlantic. So we'll look for that piece, and people can find um, all of your writing there at MarianRenault.com. Michelle, I'm gonna give you the last word on this. Anything you're working on right now that you might like to share with us? Yeah, well, I'm working on my next book, another book of essays. Um, I'm calling it uh, Pink Couches, and I'm writing essays on persons, places, and things, pink couches being a thing. Uh, and it's also going to include um, some of my paintings. I also am an amateur artist. So that is very thrilling uh, to include both of those aspects of my creativity. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, we'll watch for, for those, um, the book, and then I... The artwork is going to be featured in the book as well. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. That's great. Well, thank you both um, for your time here today. I just want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Please join me tomorrow. I'll be talking with a group of scientists who have a recent paper out talking about COVID diagnostics and returning to the question of COVID testing. And they have their papers actually talking about saliva testing and the importance of that as a low cost intervention going forward. And I wanna again, thank my guests today, Marion Renault and Michelle Weldon for their reporting about vaccination culture and much more through this pandemic. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you so much. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time.